Hello there, everyone. We have a very special edition of our June podcast for our listeners. Matt was unable to join us for these segments, so we apologize for him not being here. We did something very different. We said that we would be bringing a technical episode. Uh, Matt handed over the reins to me to record the technical episode that you're about to hear. This episode comes in three different segments. So if you are an audio listener, you're going to hear all three segments together. It runs a little over an hour. Really hope that you enjoy it. If you are following us on our YouTube channel and you like watching us talk and you like watching the seeing the video that goes with it, they will each be released as separate segments of approximately 20 minutes each over the next couple of days. So audio listeners are going to get to listen to the whole thing at once and can just sit back and enjoy. If you're subscribed to our YouTube channel, you'll get three segments released every day from the fourth on. And we really hope you enjoy it no matter which way you enjoy listening to us. If you do enjoy listening to us don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel thank you hello there to all our fellow geeks in the realm of cyberspace today we have a special podcast uh, today we're going to talk about all things cyber, we're going to talk about AI, we're going to talk about security, and we're going to talk about some hacking things. And the check-in question for you guys to think about, and I'll give my opinion a little bit later on, but do you think that artificial intelligence will eventually take over the human race? So let's talk a little bit to start about artificial intelligence and the idea, will AI take over the world? So one of my favorite books on this subject is called I, Robot. It got made into a movie around 2004, but it was originally a book written by Isaac Asimov. And he talked about the laws of robotics. He was the first person not only to talk about the idea of artificial intelligence, but also the idea of the ethics of artificial intelligence. How do we build in laws to robots to make sure that they don't try to take over the human race? And he came up with these famous laws, and, and you can look them up. A robot should never cause harm to another human being. A robot through its inaction should not cause harm to a human being. And a robot should protect itself as long as the protection of itself does not interfere with the first two laws. And the book describes kind of how these three laws go awry. And I won't ruin the plot of the book, but they're not sufficient for the ethics of artificial intelligence. In today's world, there's been a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and around the ethics of it and how are we going to make sure that artificial intelligence doesn't take over the world. So in fiction, this is used a lot. In uh, 1968, the, the first story, 2001, A Space Odyssey, that movie came out, and the artificial intelligence at the time was called HAL, H-A-L. Uh, People find it interesting, although I'm sure it's purely coincidental, that if you take the letters H-A-L and you add just one of the next letters, so after H becomes I, after A becomes B, and after L becomes M, then HAL actually looks like IBM. I'm sure it's a complete coincidence, but just a very interesting thing. And again, in this case, the artificial intelligence HAL was sent into space and 
the people on the spaceship, the, basically the entire ship was controlled by this artificial intelligence. It was given a mission which required it to lie to its crew. And that kind of messed with the ethics sensors. The HAL, by the way, stood for heuristic and algorithms, two different ways that we can write code for computers, either heuristically or algorithmic. And anyway, this sort of had a crisis of conscience in the computer, and it sort of went a little bit crazy. Another amazing movie on the realm of artificial intelligence was Short Circuit. We're going to talk about number Johnny Five, uh, which was just uh, a robot again. In this case, unlike a lot of the other dystopian stories, the robot comes alive, becomes intelligent, and it's actually a good robot and does really good things. But again, the bad guys are chasing him because he wasn't supposed to become sentient. He wasn't supposed to have knowledge of the world, uh, but he was a good guy. But then they're kind of trying to attack him. Uh, another movie and TV show, the movie I believe came out in the late 70s and the TV show is out on HBO now, is called Westworld. And Westworld is an interesting story because in Westworld, these artificial intelligent robots were designed sort of as an amusement park and people would go in and they would interact pretending that they were in the Old West and the robots were not supposed to be able to harm the human beings, but the human beings could just shoot them and use them for whatever nefarious purposes, and they use them for a lot of sometimes really disgusting purposes, and you kind of feel really bad for the robots, but eventually the robots gain this sort of sense of breaking their code, giving them the ability to actually attack back the humans, which was never supposed to be able to happen. Of course, you can't talk about artificial intelligence at all if you don't bring up the amazing movie Blade Runner. Again, dystopian look at the future, at the way that these robots were treated, how they had very near or exact human-like qualities, and what happens to them throughout. So if you're looking into what artificial intelligence movies do you want to watch, well, I would first start with iRobot, move on maybe to... Space Odyssey and the Westworld, definitely Blade Runner. And then after that, you're going to feel like, oh my God, robots are going to take over the world. Of course, the Terminator series, again, all about robots becoming intelligent, Skynet taking over the world. You're going to feel like, oh my God, the world is, is going to hell. What's, what's going to happen? And what you're going to do then is then you'll go back and you can watch short circuit because it's a feel-good artificial intelligence movie. Again, you're going to feel sad for Johnny Five and the way that he's trying to get hunted and shut down and he just doesn't want to die. So you're going to feel emotional there, but uh, he's, he's actually a good artificial intelligence trying not to take over the world. There's another book out there that I'd really recommend and I have it on audio and it's called WWW and it's by Robert Sawyer. And you might think, oh, it's about the World Wide Web. And yes, sort of. But it's actually about this main character who is blind and is going to gain uh, her sight back through some new technology uh, that they affectionately call the IEYE pod, a little pod that's supposed to help her with vision. And at the same time, there's this developing artificial intelligence on the internet that she learns to communicate back and forth with. And the author kind of remains questionable throughout the book. Is this going to be a good artificial intelligence or a bad artificial intelligence? There's a lot of people worried about it and what's going to happen. And again, it brings this, this really good story. Now, that hasn't been made into a movie yet. Hopefully it will someday. Robert Sawyer, it's called WWW. You can get it on Audible. You can get it wherever you get, you get books. It's a really good story, and I, I highly recommend it. 
So the fiction world of artificial intelligence is all about artificial intelligence taking over the world and, and what that means and how humanity is going to survive faced with this threat. So do we really have that? Is this actually based on scientific computer science fact? Well, I'll tell you, in the world today of artificial intelligence, we talk about two different kinds of intelligence. We have what's called weak AI, weak artificial intelligence, and strong AI, strong artificial intelligence. So weak AI essentially means that our, our robots, that our intelligence, that our, our, the things that we code in, are designed for a very specific purpose. So for example, there are apps out there where you can put in your symptoms that you're feeling and the app can suggest, well, this might be some of the potential causes that you might have. And doctors don't like people going and looking this stuff up because it, it kind of defeats the purpose. Is it is it replacing the doctor's jobs? Well, no, not really. It's just looking at the data, looking at what you're presented, doing some really neat tricks to try to figure that out. We have other examples that are domain-specific artificial intelligence, like even the computer voice, like you hear on Star Trek, or like you'll actually hear in, um, what was that other movie? In uh, War Games. Another great artificial intelligence movie that I forgot to talk about, uh, The Whopper, the machine that apparently uh, likes to play games and thinks that there's no difference between a simulation of destroying the Earth and actually destroying the Earth. Again, very good movie, uh, also, based in the, also came out in the 1980s. And in that movie, there's a scene where they put in a disc and the computer can speak. And at that time, computer voice wasn't very well established. Um, certainly the ability for a computer to understand your voice when you speak it and interpret it into words and text definitely did not exist at that time. Now we have it and because we've had it because of this weak AI. And we have it because of this weak AI because we created a domain-specific feature that can read and interpret your words and convert them to text. And that is done with artificial intelligence, but it's called weak AI because it's designed just for that domain. And all of the artificial intelligence today that exists today is weak AI. Strong AI is a general purpose artificial intelligence. A strong AI, no matter what you gave it to do, no matter what task you put it towards, just like a human being, could eventually learn and figure out how to do that task to grow. And no matter what the task, if you asked it to go to school and take classes and get a degree, it could do that. If you asked it to get a glass of water in anybody's house, you know, we don't think about this, but there's a lot of complex tasks involved in figuring out how to get a glass of water. And we could design a computer that could figure out how to do that in a specific house in a specific time. But then could we take that robot, that computer, and move it to anybody else's house and have it figure out how to do it without having to give it any further instructions? The kitchen might be in a different spot, the, the tap might be in a different spot, the amount of pressure it has to apply to the glass or to the cup changes, all of these things it would have to try to figure out on its own. And then at the same time, be able to do any other generic skill and figure it out. And that's strong artificial intelligence. There's a well-known futurist who currently works in the, in the Google team and he, his name is Ray Kurzweil, 
and he basically popularized this idea of the AI singularity. And, and basically, he says computers evolve at an incredible speed. And that's not his. He, he did the research. Like our, our, the speed of computers has continued to increase year after year after year. And we start learning more and learning more. And he's like, eventually, the machine will become intelligent and then will actually become more intelligent than human intelligence. We will give it the ability to design its own designs to increase on its intelligence and it will sort of surpass us. And he calls that the singularity because it means at that point, the intelligence of the computer will supersede the intelligence of a human being. And that's where people get worried, okay, now they're gonna become our AI overlords. And it's an interesting theory uh, but we don't even have strong AI yet. We don't even have these general purpose machines that they show in the fiction shows that they show in Star Trek or that they show in Short Circuit or that they show in war games. These machines that can do generic anything skills simply do not exist today. And what's interesting is it's a bit of a magic act. You know, in today's world, we talk about things like chat GPT taking over the world. Uh, because it can replicate a lot of things. It, it uses a, an artificial intelligence thing called a large language model. And if you interact with it, it sounds pretty realistic. Pretty, and, and if we go back in time, this is also true about every time a new artificial intelligence algorithm came out from the early days of a program called ELISA to the later chatbots that we have, to the chat GPT that we have, it can fool people for longer and longer and longer. The father of artificial intelligence, Alan Turing, came out with this test. And he basically said, if a computer communicating with a human can be indistinguishable between a human communicating with a human, you don't know whether what you're talking to is human or computer, then essentially, it has gained this ability of strong AI. It has this it has this ability to fool you. But what it really shows is just like the magician's pen and teller, what happens is when we don't know how it's working, it's easy for us to be fooled and think, oh, this is really, truly strong artificial intelligence. But when we look at it, when we have an example to examine the code, when we have an understanding of how it all works, it's like looking behind the curtains of how the magic works. And we're like, oh, so it only works in this specific domain. Therefore, it's still weak AI. And we then come to that conclusion. So if we ever want it to fool people, we just have to hide the secrets of how we did it and then people are like, oh, wow, this is really scary. It's going to take over all of our jobs. Now, computers and technology have been taking over people's jobs for many years. You know, in the automotive industry is a great example of where this happens because in the automotive world, there are robots that are doing all the welding, that are putting together all the machinery, that are controlling how things move along the conveyor belt, when things should stop, how things should move. Like, it's all designed by somebody who wrote the code or multiple people that wrote the code that makes all that work all in a very synchronous way. And so they get all the credit for the uh, for the code that they wrote and the, and it's not artificially intelligent, it's just literally somebody wrote the machines that then took away those specific jobs. So there is an actual fear that that computers and technology does reduce jobs. It gives more availability to other people to work in different jobs while reducing the scope of things that can be done routine. That will always be true regardless of whether there exists artificial intelligence or not. 
but it's not going to take away our human ability to figure out how to solve problems on a generic level, on a general purpose level. We don't have that yet, and I don't think that's going to come anytime in the future. So that's artificial intelligence, fact versus fiction. It's definitely out there. It's definitely in our in our culture to think about computers taking over the world, controlling us all, uh, and 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 making us their slaves. Not something that you need to worry about. Not something you need to keep yourself up at night to worry about. We're not even close to there, in my opinion. But if you do want to look at some information, watch some movies, get excited about the idea, and then look at what we have today. Uh, look into the details. Learn some of the magic behind the curtain. And I think you'll reach the same conclusion that at no time soon will artificial intelligence take over the world. Now we're going to talk about the idea of security, security in the movies, AI, security, breaking in, hacking, what is real and what is not. And I'm going to start by giving you a big secret about the, the world of computers and hacking, and that is all the data, all of the items in the world stored on all of these disks all over the world, everything in the information superhighway, it's just zeros and ones that represent real things, but in themselves are not real things. And I think we forget about this. If we want to talk a little bit about movies, we're going to talk about this really neat idea called the half-cent rounding problem, and it's used in the movie Superman 3, and it's also used in the movie Office Space. And the idea is very simple. Since all these computers are simply storing data in the amount of zeros and ones, let's take something as simple as your bank account. You use your banking every day, you use your credit card every day, you use your debit card every day, you don't think about it. But when you do the math on various functions like adding tax, there's always additional numbers that get added after the cents. So you buy something and it costs you $1.99, they add sales tax. What it actually will come out to mathematically is a number that it might be, let's say, $2.10, but it's really $2.10987623540. And what we do is we round it up or we round it down based on whatever the rules of roundings that is used for the finance industry. But that means that additional half cents of things just gets rounded off. And they take advantage of this in the Superman 3 movie and in the Office Space movie because they say, well, what if we took all of these rounded numbers and we kind of snuck them into another account that nobody knew about. Now in the real world, this is known as the salami effect because you're kind of cutting it into slices and these slices you're kind of sneaking into another account. And in both of these, surprising to the people that did it, whether they be the uh, gentleman Richard Pryor character or whether it be to the characters for the uh, Inotech, they suddenly realize they have all this money in this account because these half cents keep coming up and coming up and coming up. And, you know, where's all this money coming from? We're, we're essentially inventing money in the digital world that doesn't actually exist in the actual world, but it will actually go into an account and let us take money. Uh, that's an interesting way that is fictionalized that does have some truth to it. Uh, you could technically do this. One of the main problems with it is it's not easy to create accounts which are untraceable. Now, in the world of cryptocurrency, we can do this with things like Bitcoin or 
Ethereum, these different types of cryptocurrency where you don't really know who exactly owns it. So that's one way. And it's done a lot in the real world in terms of how we might trick somebody into installing some software on their machine and force them to send us some some cryptocurrency so that we can unlock it and give them access or we we threaten to sell their data if they don't send us some bitcoin and that's untraceable but with many 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 bank accounts and rules around bank accounts bank accounts have to be validated to actually belong to an actual physical person so if you were to try to sneak money into an account Unless you went to the trouble of somehow setting up an entire fake identity for somebody, it's hard to not have the bank simply say, well, that's the person who all these half cents are going into, so we know who the person is to blame and arrest. I suppose you could try to hack into somebody else's bank account and then have the funds go to their bank account and then sneak them out of your bank account into your own bank account. But again, that's going to be easily traceable. So it's a little bit more complex to do in the real world, but it is a real thing that these half cents exist. They can be sliced off and they can be put into a certain spot rather than just being dropped into nothingness, into the abyss. Hacking in movies is really interesting because it always seems so simple when we watch the movie and we watch how that hacker hacks into things. And some of the early movies, again, I brought up in our last segment, we talked about war games. In war games, the, the main character basically does a thing, again, this actually was a real thing back in the 80s uh, with dial-up modems. And the way it would work is you would set up your software to just randomly dial. I shouldn't say randomly. It would start with a seven-digit number and it would start with, the first, you know, the area, and then the last four digits, so 0001, and it would try to dial it and see if it could make a computer connection to it. And if it didn't, if it failed, fine, it would hang up and it would go 0002. And it would continue going through these until it actually found a machine that could pick up. So what happened was these companies out there would be connected, not to the internet, but they would have modems that would allow their companies to connect to them from remote locations, and they would have phone numbers that people could dial into. They would never publish the number, so they would think, oh, we're safe. Nobody's going to hack into us because nobody knows what phone number to dial, right? Well, the the bad guys, and they're not always bad guys, they're just people experimenting. They're like, well, what if I just try every number? The computer can dial every number. I don't even have to be at home. I can just have it run this program to dial every number while I'm away. And then I come back and it tells me, well, these were the machines that I could successfully contact over the phone lines. And then you could go in and say, well, what happens when I dial that? What do I get as a login prompt? That's exactly what happens in the War Games movie. He's just doing this ro rotating dialing of systems. He finds a system, he gets a login prompt, and then he starts thinking, well, what could I possibly use to log in to this system? By the way, I love the movie War Games so much that I actually create it a little simulator that you can connect to and you can try pretending to hack into the, the same, the machine was called the Whopper. You could try W-O-P-R and you could try accessing it yourself. And I'll put a link in the notes to this uh, if you ever want to give it a try. It is a little bit technical, some of the things you have to do. I give the commands, but if you're into that sort of thing, you can get your own copy of my of my code. You can try hacking into this fake Whopper the same way. You could follow along in the movie uh, entering the same commands that the main character does, played by Matthew Broderick as a very young kid, by the way, uh, and see the same thing. Another movie that if you're into hacking that you really need to watch because 
it's it's very important in the way that it describes the hacking scene in the late 80s and the early 90s. And the funny thing is, it's not all that inaccurate. Again, what happens is, is they show this idea of that you can just turn on any computer at any time. Uh, that doesn't even seem to be connected to any kind of network, and then magically you can access it. And that's that's not really the truth. But there did exist machines in those times that were connected to modems that were on 24-7 and that you could access. And some of these events really did happen. In fact, at the start of the Hackers movie, again, this came out in 1995, they show a guy interfering with a video, uh, a television station, changing the shows that were supposed to be programmed by logging into the the television station, changing its programming, and then the robot would remove these video cassettes back from those days into the new things, and he could change the programming to whatever he wanted. This is actually historic fact. There was uh, an actual event that happened, I think it was about 10 years before that movie, where somebody did actually hack into a television station. They did change some stuff around. There was a lot of controversy around it. In the prior segment, we talked about artificial intelligence and the fear of artificial intelligence taking over the world. Well, this preys on the same type of fear, except instead of it being artificial intelligence, it's preying on the fear of hackers taking over our society. And that's what these this was showing well oh my god they could change the they could change the programming for a television station if they can do that what else could they do can they get into our financial systems and can they get into our 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 secret weapon systems uh like they do in war games and that's what it's preying on it's preying on this fear uh so again hackers great movie to watch if you want to get into hacking uh another one is war games which again came out in 1993 there are all kinds of other interesting movies that may not be directly involved hacking. If you watch movies about the FBI or people hacking into the FBI, they'll just be this little scene in the background where apparently you just type a couple of magical commands like grant me all access, and then suddenly they get all access to the system. Not exactly how it works. Definitely more complicated than that, but uh, not as complicated as you might think. So let's talk about a little bit about what is real. So I already mentioned that, yeah, somebody did actually take over uh, a television station back in the 80s. And again, I'll put a link in the show notes about about that article that you can check out. Another thing that happened was the free Kevin movement. And they showed this a little bit in the Hackers movie, although they, they title it a little bit differently. But it actually also is something that really happened. And Kevin Mitnick uh, right now is a very, very, very rich security person in the IT world. Um, but when he was a kid, um, people were so scared about what hackers could do. He was kind of the poster child for how the government was going to crack down on these people trying to hack into machines. And, and back in this time, people have found ways to, for example, cheat the phone company out of thousands of dollars of long distance charges by creating these things called blue boxes that would basically bypass the the long distance system to make you make long distance phone calls without having to actually pay for it. And there was a lot of stuff going on and 
poor Kevin Mitnick just kind of also was just sort of playing around with these ideas, but they made him the person that we're going to make him a shiny example of the things that we're going to do. And, and they, they brought him to court. They charged him with all kinds of uh, things, theft of theft of devices, uh, fraud and uh, stealing of money, all these things. And they were trying to build this case to try to show we are not going to let hackers do these types of things. And the, the response back from the community was enormous. People were selling bumper stickers and people were selling t-shirts, free Kevin, this is wrong, you know. And the thing is, you know, people are like, well, why are there people out there that try to hack into other people's machines? Like what is going on in their mind that they think this is okay? You don't walk into somebody else's house and steal their stuff. Why do you try to get into their personal devices and look at them? And if you think with the mind of a hacker, not with the mind of, but if you think with the mind of a hacker, it's a little bit like thinking with the mind of a mountain climber or an adventurist or a thrill seeker, right? Why do you do it? Because it's there, because it's a challenge. 99.9% of the hackers that are out there trying to do stuff are not trying to do it because they want to steal something, because they want to get rich off it. Now, there are the small but loud group of people that we could call black hats, and they are out there to steal your data. And that is a real threat. They're out there to try to get money from you, to extort you, to to trick you into doing things that you shouldn't do, to try to get stuff from you. And, and in the early days, you know, it was the emails coming around from the Nigerian princess saying, you know, oh, I have millions of dollars and I would just like to, to give them out to you um, that would scam people. And the scams have gotten more and more and more complicated to the point that now it's hard to tell if the email that you're getting telling you that your banking password has been lost or stolen, please click this link to, to fix. Is that legit or is that? you know, some sort of what we now call phishing technique to try to trick you to go to this fake site so they can steal your information. So that that threat is real. But for the majority of people, they're just trying to understand. They're just trying to have a playground. They're just trying to see, can I do this? Not because they're trying to cause harm, just because of the thrill, just because of the credit they can get from trying to do it. It actually happened to me years ago um, that I was given access. I wasn't trying to find different systems, but I was given access to what was called bulletin board systems, which is sort of a precursor to the internet that we have today. You would dial into them. And the school let me on, the school I was part of, let me on to their system. And I discovered something by accident. So in those days, we didn't have Windows. The system was called DOS. And if you were connected to a machine and you hit the command Alt-D, it would drop you to a DOS prompt and then you could play with the stuff on your computer or whatever you want to do and then go back into where you were. Well, I was into this bulletin board system and I accidentally hit Control-D, not Alt-D, and it dropped me to a DOS prompt and I didn't think anything about it. And still I started looking around. I'm like, wait a minute, this, this isn't, this isn't my computer. What am I looking at here? And it was the files on the computer of the bulletin board system. So simply by typing or hitting that command, I sort of accidentally hacked into this system and I left them a file that they would see the next time they reboot it saying who I was. And I think there might be a, a flaw in their software. It probably shouldn't have let me do this. And they contacted me quite soon after that, had a little discussion and then, you know, 
sort of teach you about the ethics of computers, and then they 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 fix their problem. But it was very easy. It was very easy back in those days for things to happen, for people to gain access to things that they probably shouldn't have had access to, and. What happened to a lot of these people who were back in the in the 80s and the 90s getting in trouble for hacking ended up founding IT security companies today, leaders of the big IT security companies who were once hackers back in the past. So again, in the movie Hackers 1995, its its theme is along that same idea, and it's interesting that it is you know as a fictional show that's fictionalized is very well following sort of some of the history of hacking uh, that isn't that isn't really talked about. So there's definitely some truth in the in the security hacking world uh, to how it's shown in some movies. Just keep in mind that the fear they're trying to propagate in these movies is the idea that uh, the hackers are out there to take over the world. Um, there are many different types of hackers. We have white hat hackers who are out there to try to find vulnerabilities, to help people close those vulnerabilities so that other people can't get in. So they're kind of the good guys. Uh, we have the black hat hackers, like I said, smaller percentage, but louder. You know, we have groups like Anonymous uh, now that, that, that try to go out there and you know, basically say what we think is going right in the world, what we think is going wrong. There's sort of a, uh, you know, some people might classify them as, as cyber terrorism, but there's sort of a, a group trying to bring uh, awareness to things that they think are, are injustices and to use their, their hacking skills to create situations to change the to change the direction to change the course of that so you you might think that that's a good thing you might think that that's a bad thing and really i'm not going to get into that the ethics of all of that but these groups do exist there are groups that exist that are trying to steal your information there are groups that exist that are trying to spread misinformation to throw you off and confuse us this is all real things these are all things that we need to deal with as a society um, and at the same time this is not the majority of what people do as IT. If you speak to your general programmer or, or IT analyst or, or you know, the guy down the street that you think is a geek and is into computers, they don't have all these magical hacking skills. I'm going to mention one site called tryhackme.com. And this site teaches you a lot about the world of hacking, about the realness of how it all works. It's very modern. It's very up to date. It's not going to show you, you know, how to hack into a computer that existed 20 or 30 years ago. These are things that exist today. These are tools that exist today that anybody can use to learn a little bit about how that hacking works. They actually give you their own little network of machines, sort of a sandbox of machines that you can play around with and trying to hack into. And it's completely legal. It's completely legit. It's just to teach you about how hacking works, to educate you a bit about how some vulnerabilities exist. Uh, there's another great company out there called Hack5. They produce some very interesting technology, which again, as a tool, could be used to do a lot of bad things, but it also can be used to educate you on some of the weaknesses you might have in your own home network or the weakness that a company might have in their own home network or their Wi-Fi network and ways to improve that to keep you safe from the defenses of these black hat hackers. So again, 
truth versus reality, a little bit different, but uh, closer than the prior segment where we talked a little bit between artificial intelligence and reality. So that's hacking and security in the movies, what is real and what is not. We are talking about things technology related. We are talking about, we've talked about artificial intelligence. We've talked a little bit about hacking. Now we're going to talk a little bit about privacy and encryption in our modern world. We're going to talk a bit, a little bit about fact versus fiction. What is real in the world of privacy encryption and what is kind of made up in the world of, of fiction. And the first movie that I want to talk about is one that came out in 2001. And it's called Swordfish. And you might think, well, well, Swordfish, that's that I watched that. That was that was a hacking movie, right? Why is it in the encryption? Well, what's interesting about Swordfish, as we've moved with the hacking episode, we talked about coming out of the 80s and people were just easily accessing people's machines via modems and and it was it, you know, it was a fairly simplistic world where people had very easy passwords. As we get into the 2000s, people are starting to learn some lessons. They're like, we need to protect this data. We need to keep it safe. And how do we do that? We need to have strong passwords and we need to encrypt our data. So what's, what's that mean? We need to encrypt our data. We need to store our data in a way that if somebody were to steal it without the proper credentials, they would be unable to decipher its meaning. And we came out with algorithms that would do that, that would basically encrypt the data uh, in a way that it couldn't be seen. And one of the t methods, one of the algorithms happens to be called blowfish. The swordfish is just another type of fish. But when you first think of it, if you know of the algorithm blowfish, uh, then you might think, okay, that's, that's what he's getting at here. It's an encryption technique that actually came out in 1993. I don't know, was the, was the name came out before the movie Swordfish, which I think came out in 2001, but very simple. Blowfish is a real actual algorithm used to encrypt data. And Swordfish was the movie about a hacker trying to hack into people. Now it's more complicated than it used to be. Now your data is encrypted. How are you going to get past that encryption uh, to get at that data to be able to implant the computer virus into the system? So Swordfish, Blowfish, kind of an interesting uh, mix of the real versus the fictional world. Another, another movie I want to talk about is The Da Vinci Code. With the, the Da Vinci Code doesn't really have any computer hacking in it, doesn't really mention computers. But what's interesting, if you watch the Da Vinci Code, is there is a lot of puzzles being solved. And it brings forth the idea that this idea of encrypting data has been around since long before computers even existed. Back in the time of Caesar, trying to send messages out to troops. He invented ciphers, ways of encoding his messages so that, that when they were sent out, that there was nobody, or if somebody tried to intercept it, they would have a challenging or a different, uh, difficult time trying to figure out what that meant. And uh, fast forward a little bit to the time of the, of the World Wars, and the Germans invented a machine called the Enigma machine, which was basically a, a very... 
uh, souped-up typewriter that you would you would type your message into, but as you typed letters on that keyboard, different letters than what you typed would appear on your printout. You would take that printout, you would type those letters into the receiving Enigma machine as you see them on the screen, and it would produce the actual message. So again, not a computer, but a mechanical technology using a typewriter and a series of plugs that would encrypt and decrypt the data uh, that the Germans would send messages across uh, throughout, throughout the entire war. And I mentioned the great founder of artificial intelligence, Alan Turing, who came up with the idea of the Turing test. He was also instrumental in these war times of figuring out how to crack the Enigma machine because it was a very complex ciphering method for storing data and he was a very prominent mathematician of the day trying to come up with ways to try to figure out how to hack this machine and of course they made a whole movie about it called the imitation game uh, definitely definitely worth watching uh, definitely showing some of the factual references along what he went through and what his team went through to try to figure out how do we gain access to this. And then some of the horrible decisions they had to make once they actually did figure out how to decrypt the machine uh, to, to maintain security, even in some cases at the loss of, of many lives. So a good movie, uh, and, and technically what he invented to determine how to crack the machine, the, the device that he creates, very mechanical, but very close to what we would think of in a high-level sense that we would think of as a computer. So very interesting. Now, the other reason I mentioned the Da Vinci Code, if you haven't watched it, go check it out, is the same author, Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code as a book, also wrote another book called Digital Fortress, one of my all-time favorite books definitely in the top 10 list. And Digital Fortress is about computers and hacking into computers. And it talks about the FBI and it talks about some of the uh, algorithms that they use. Uh, the main core concept in this book is the idea of an algorithm, which basically, if you own it, can defeat it's sort of this amazing encryption system that can defeat the NSA's top machine uh, and make sure that even it can't secretly decrypt your data. And it's a very interesting plot. It's a very interesting story. I don't think it's ever been released again as a movie. It would definitely make a really amazing movie uh, to watch. Actually, maybe they did, but maybe it didn't turn out. You can you can look into that yourself. But it's called Digital Fortress. You can get it on Audible if you just want to listen to it as an audiobook. A really amazing story about this this sort of hacking world, this sort of encryption world, the fictionalized idea of the depths that the government will go to to keep their data safe basically by being able to snoop on everybody else. And, and I, I find that there's some correlations in that story and in the true life story, the actual interesting real case of Edward Snowden, uh, who revealed a lot of information uh, about the way government surveillance works that probably he wasn't supposed to. He was a bit of a whistleblower in that way. The real life situation was, you know, probably around 2013, and the book came out many years before that, so it's just kind of an, an interesting relationship there. So let's talk a little bit about encryption and what is real uh, versus the fiction. So 
It is true that we've grown a lot significantly in how we manage our data and how we encrypt our data, how companies store and save our data using all kinds of various encryption techniques. One of the first ones in the 70s was called DES, and it was the initial encryption standard that was adopted by the government to protect our data, digital encryption security. Uh, as computers came faster, just as I said was predicted by Ray Kurzweil, machines become faster and faster and faster, which means they can hack these encryption algorithms. They can figure them out without the password faster and faster and faster. DES encryption was eventually broke um, not too long after it came out. So then they came up with triple DES called 3DES encryption, which basically meant they encrypted the same thing with the same algorithm, only they did it three times. Again, computer technology gets faster and faster and faster, uh, causing 3DES to actually eventually become broken as well. So we, as, as developers, we have to keep coming out with new, stronger algorithms to beat the fact that the computers get faster and faster. And the time that it takes to discover the password or discover and decipher the test, test becomes faster and faster. Right now, the one that we're using is called the AES, the Advanced Encryption Standard, which is better than 3DES, which unless the government has secretly figured out how to hack it, as far as we know, it cannot be hacked. And it was it was actually sort of in competition with that with that blowfish algorithm. There was a bunch of series of algorithms generated around the same time, almost like a little contest. Actually, I think it might have been a contest to be like, what will be the next encryption standard that comes out? And the one that won uh, wasn't called AES at first, but it eventually got renamed as AES, the Advanced Encryption Standard. And that's what's used to protect most data today. These systems like 3DES and DES and AES fall under a category of what we call shared key password encryption. So if you know the password that encrypted the data, you can use that same password to decrypt the data. So a lot of attempts to actually gain access to this data is to try what's called a brute force attack, to try a dictionary attack, to try multiple different types of passwords to see if we can get the system to return back to us some real data that makes sense to us. A second type of encryption is known as PKI, public key encryption. And it differs mathematically in the sense that there's two keys, one key that encrypts the data and a different key that decrypts the data. So knowing the encryption key does not give you the ability to decrypt the data. And knowing the decryption key does not give you the ability to re-encrypt the data. And this public key in, uh, infrastructure, it is what is used when you're doing your banking transactions online, when you're logging in with your credit card. In fact, recently the entire internet has switched pretty much to uh, HTTPS, which again is using this public key encryption when you go to a site and you see that little S, HTTPS, the data is getting encrypted on both sides, one side encrypting it with its key, the other side decrypting it with its key, back and forth. And actually, if you wanted to get into the real technical details of it, that only happens very quickly at the beginning so that they can share a key between them and say, okay, this is the key we both agree on to use for the encryption, and then, then it uses this AES encryption after that to actually shared key encryption to send the data. And the first part is just the, the initial handshake with public key encryption to figure out what that shared key is going to be. And that's how a lot of it works. In my opinion, it doesn't get used nearly 
as often as it should be. From a privacy perspective, you know, we talked in, in the hacking world, we talked about how people are trying to steal your, your data. They're trying to steal information from you. They're trying to use it to, to basically force you to give them money, evasive, evasive methods. But the other part that I wanted to talk about in this episode is the idea of privacy, is the idea that simply being on the internet, simply by interacting with some of your favorite social media tools, you're giving a lot of information about yourself to the companies that are hosting this data. And they're not necessarily using it to try to extort you. They're using it to sell your information to other people because that's the model of how they make money. So you go onto these tools and they're free, right? You don't, you don't pay a monthly fee to use your Snapchats or to use your Facebook or to use your, what's the one recently everybody's trying to put a ban on? Yeah, TikTok. <laughs> TikTok everybody's trying to put a ban on because of the idea that they're trying to steal your information. Again, not, not to extort you but because they can then sell that information to advertisers because that's the model of how they make money. There's some very simple things that you can do to keep that information private, to keep that information from, from getting out there, to keep that information from being used against you. But a lot of people just, they don't use the tools. They don't try it. They don't install the tools. And so that information just kind of gets absorbed. And putting all of these three segments together, because of where we've advanced in artificial intelligence, these algorithms are able to take little bits of data that you leak here and there, not even knowingly, and build a complex profile about who you are as a person, as a spender, as a consumerist, and reach conclusions. And very real, true situation, again, I'll put an article in the show notes, about a father who discovered that his daughter was pregnant thanks to a certain company automatically putting in the mail coupons to his daughter for pregnancy type stuff. And what this company had done is they had developed an algorithm that was that was scanning all of their data they had about people and coming up with a factor to determine the odds that they are pregnant based on the recent purchases that they've made in that store. And then by targeting them through their marketing people with specific coupons for pregnancy related things. So what happens is the, the, the father gets very upset and he, he writes a stern letter to this company and he says, why do you keep sending my 16 year old stuff about pregnancy, coupons about pregnancy, coupons about diapers? She's only 16. She shouldn't be getting this stuff. Like, I think there's something wrong. And then, you know, he goes back and forth with the company multiple times. The company doesn't know what's going on either. They're apologizing. They're like, we're sorry that this information got sent out to, to your daughter. And he eventually responds. He's like, actually, I need to say that I'm sorry to you. Uh, my daughter and I had a long talk last night. It turns out that she actually is pregnant and was scared to tell us about it. So the company accurately predicted the 16-year-old daughter's pregnancy simply by some of her prior purchases. Maybe, for example, she bought some some special vitamins uh, that you take during your pregnancy. But it, it did some calculations and it gave her a high probability of being pregnant and then correctly targeted her with coupons for, say, you know, diapers and, 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 and baby clothes and stuff like that. Uh, and the father was like, wow. So that information can be fed into these artificial intelligence, again, weak AI algorithms, and get accurate information out about the assumptions that it made based on that information. Okay, so I want to talk to you about three 
very easy to use tools for your encryption and your privacy purposes. These tools are 100% completely free and open source. They're very easy to use. I don't think they get used enough. So I'm going to promote them out there and I'll have individual videos for each one showing how each one can be used. If you're listening to this on the audio version of the podcast, I'll encourage you to go out to those videos in the show notes and you can go watch the videos of how they work. The first is called GPG for USB. This is a very simple tool that you download and you basically use like a notepad document. You type whatever message you want into it, whatever information you want. You want to send an email to your friend, whatever. You type that information in and you basically simply hit an encrypt button. It's going to use that public key infrastructure, share, not a shared private key between the two parties, but actually your own key to encrypt. And the receiver is going to have their own key to decrypt back and forth the data. And I'll, the video will show you how to do all of this, but it's very simple, very easy to use. And it can be stored on any machine. It will work on any operating system like Windows or like Macs or Linux. It's very simple to use. You download it and you can easily make that encryption copy of your data. You can then put it in your email, send it to people, and nobody else is going to be able to read it except the person. You encrypt it with their public key so only their private key can decrypt it. And that's basically how that works. The second app that I highly recommend is called DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo is a competitor basically to Google, the Google search engine. And when Google first came out, one of its main mission statements, one of its main code of ethics statements was do no evil. And several years back, they actually removed do no evil from their mandate, from their code. Uh, it's no longer there as part of Google. And it kind of makes you wonder, hmm, why did they remove this amazing do no evil? Well, DuckDuckGo is a search engine, but it's much more. And it promises absolutely no tracking of any of your searches in any way. DuckDuckGo is also available as a mobile client that you can install. Their mobile client has some very interesting features as well that you can enable. Some are still in beta, but basically will also keep track of all your other apps and prevent those other apps from leaking private data and information as well. So DuckDuckGo, another excellent tool, very easy to go to to download and install. It's basically a plugin for your Chrome browser or for your Edge browser. It's a little app that you install on your mobile phone. Switch your searches from using Google to using DuckDuckGo to get increased privacy, really good search results, high quality, excellent search engine, and all the privacy features that it includes on top of that. The third tool, is not for necessarily encrypting messages back and forth with emails, but it is for your messaging stuff. So maybe you like to use Facebook Messenger for your chat or whatever, whatever type of chat app you like to use. I'm going to suggest switching to one called Signal, Signal Messenger. Again, it's 100% free. It does chat messaging back and forth. It does voice calls back and forth. It does video back and forth. And what it does is it automatically encrypts the data back and forth between you and the party or parties. You can do group chats that you're chatting with and nobody except those people 
can in any way access your data. If they try to intercept your data in between, they're just going to get a bunch of gobbledygook that doesn't make any sense. One thing I will tell you about Signal Messenger is in order to use it, it will know your phone number and you will see the phone number of the other people that you're chatting with. So you are sharing your phone number back and forth and it is using your phone because it's a mobile app uh, and it's sending that information over your data or if you're on Wi-Fi over your Wi-Fi completely encrypted on both sides so that only you and the person you're talking to or the group you're talking to is going to see that information is going to be able to know what it is. Again, 100% completely free uh, and costs you nothing to use. You just have to download it, install it, share it with your friends, do your messaging on it, and know that nobody is able to tap in and see that information. All these, by the way, are open source as well. So anybody can look at the source, they can look at the security of how it works, meaning that, hey, if you think that, uh, that we have any errors, that we think that we've did anything wrong with our security, let us know so that we can improve it. So again, Highly recommend it. GPG for USB, DuckDuckGo for your web searches, and Signal Messenger for your messaging back and forth. Couple of honorable mentions uh, for your social media. Uh, uh, Mastodon is a social networking client, kind of like Twitter, um, that is focused on on privacy and is focused on a different way of looking at social networking. Uh, called the Federated World. And if you do decide to use Mastodon or get into Mastodon, uh, for the mobile app, I would suggest an app called FediLab. There's many different clients that you can use. Mastodon has its own uh, mobile client, but FediLab I found to be the best. Also for the mobile Open Keychain, Open Keychain, again, 100% free. It's basically GPG for USB, except it's so you can use it on your mobile phone as well. And the same keys that you would use for GPG USB can also be imported into Open Keychain and back and forth. So you can use those same keys on those two apps. For email, there's an email app called K9Mail. It's again, a mobile app. And it helps integrate that encryption on both sides automatically. So it's a few less steps than, say, having to paste it into one thing, encrypt it, and then paste it into your email. So it'll save you a few net, uh, steps. But again, uses that same infrastructure called GNU Privacy Guard, which was formerly known as Pretty Good Privacy PGP, gives you high-grade quality encryption on both ends using this public key infrastructure. So again, both parties have their own keys. They can share their public keys with one another for encryption and they have their private keys for decryption. Go through the videos. There'll be a different video for each one, how each one works, um, showing some of the details of it and they'll be released at a later time. But that'll, that'll, that'll show you how those tools work. GPG, DuckDuckGo, Signal Messenger, those three will greatly improve your privacy. One of the things I've noticed since switching to these is that I still do get ads. You know, Facebook has ads, Twitter has, I get ads all over the place. But the ads are now no longer have that freaky feeling. And you might have noticed that freaky feeling yourself. If you've ever, for example, just bought something on Amazon and then you start looking through Facebook and for some reason it's selling you the exact product you just bought or something very similar to the exact product that you just bought or you've gone to Home Depot and then after you've been at Home Depot and you start looking at your Twitter account, you start getting all these ads for different things from Home Depot. Well, that's again because you're, you're secretly, you're leaking a little bit of information and those artificial intelligence algorithms are building on that to try to recommend you products. Well, since switching to these tools, I still get ads, but the ads 
don't really have any relevance to me. So this isn't going to stop the advertising. DuckDuckGo does a little bit block ads, so that's very nice. It just doesn't show you the ad at all uh, when it's integrated. Um, but some of the other things when you do see ads, they're just really ridiculous ads that make no sense because they're no longer able to see that private information of yours. This entire podcast will be released in its audio format to everybody as one giant dump uh, of technical information and the individual videos. I think we'll have three individual videos released uh, over three different days uh, on the on the YouTube channel and you can watch all of the different videos in the smaller segment format. But thank you very much for continuing to subscribe to our podcast. If you like what you heard, please let us know. Please share it with others. If you have any questions about this episode or about any episode or questions on technology or anything geeky, uh, let us know on the appropriate channels and we will respond and we will get, do our best. May the inner geek find you anywhere you are. <laughs>